Hiya. Welcome to episode two of the Christians in Sport podcast. By the way, before we go any further, thank you so much for the number of you who downloaded this podcast, our first ever podcast, of course, last month. Thank you to many people who passed this on on social media and a particular thank you to those of you who wrote a review on iTunes. Great stuff. It's done us a lot of good and we're on the road. Right. Imagine you're a really top athlete. In fact, you compete at judo for Great Britain and you're in the gym doing the boring work on the rowing machine to gain strength and get your lungs going. And some old boy comes up to you and says, are you a rower? And you say, no. They say, you've never rowed. You say, never rowed. Imagine the scenario that that happens to somebody and three years later, they're under 23 world champion and they're going to the Sydney Olympics. Outrageous, right? That's Debbie Flood. She's my guest today and you are going to get such an inside line into the life of a top, top level female rower. I caught up with her at a girls' school because the one thing this woman cannot do is stop investing in the lives of people to make a difference for them. Debbie Flood. The Christians in Sport podcast with Graham Daniels. I'm with Debbie Flood, the rower, and really, I can't give you the whole CV because I've only got a limited amount of time for this podcast. Here's a summary. She was at world level all the time, bar one year, and I'll explain that in a minute, from 98 to 2012. Every world championship, bar one, when she was training to be a prison officer. Yes, she was. We'll come back to it. Four times in the Olympics, four times Olympian. Sydney, Athens, Beijing and London. Three goals in the World Championship quad, 06, 07, 10. Two silvers in the Olympics, Athens, 204, Beijing, 208. That's a CV. Debbie Flood joins me just having landed from a flight from Portugal where she's been with the 2016 Rio squad. What are you doing? <laughs> well, I did officially retire after 2012, uh, but really wanted to put back into sport. So I helped out in my rowing club at Leander Club for the, th the three years after that with our development girls and uh, still found myself at a pretty fit level. So <laughs> I seem to be uh, training again with the GB team on a level to try and see if I can impact in a development boat that's trying to qualify for, for the Rio Games. So training at the moment, but uh, whether that will lead on to Rio this year, uh, time will tell. And how are you feeling right now? Because you've been away with them. Uh, it's all open-ended for Rio. Mm. Look, if I can be candid with you, it's 1998 that you're in your first Worlds. It's 2016. And all you've been doing at Leander <laughs> is making sure that you're helping out, hanging around. And now they're saying, maybe you could be in a boat. I mean, how much do you want that? Oh, it's, it's, it, the training is tough. Obviously, I'm older now, so I need my sleep. I need my recovery. But, you know, love being part of that environment. Love the racing. Training's been tough, but, you know, my body's pretty robust and it's holding up at the moment. Uh, it's interesting talking about Leander Boat Club because I'm very aware that after 200 years in existence as the, the boat club in the United Kingdom for rowing, uh, you, Debbie Flood, became captain of Leander, the first female captain how did that come about oh that was a pretty a pretty incredible time i mean leander club is the most successful sports club in olympic sport in the world in any sport uh we have 111 olympic medals to to the name of the club so 
it's it's a pretty outstanding place for development and producing Olympians that come back with medals. And coming up to his 200-year anniversary now, and I was the first captain to be a female. That was a big historical moment for the club. I also wasn't necessarily a, you know Olympic gold medalist at, at, at that time either. So it was a real privilege to be a part of that and you know really inspire our younger generation coming through the club. Um, nominated by committee of Leander, and it was a great surprise at the time. I want to move on to um, how on earth uh, this Bradford girl, uh, who takes up karate uh, for self-protection, ends up being at GB judo level. How on earth does this girl end up rowing between 97 and 99 in a two-year window? You move from judo to world championship level rowing and you'd never been in a boat in 97. That's absurd. It was a crazy time, really. I mean, I loved sport. Absolutely loved sport growing up and obviously tried lots of different sports. And I used to watch the Olympics and think, wow, you know, they're superhuman. It was like uh, a world apart. But I used to think, oh, I wonder if I would ever be one day good enough at, uh, at sport to have the honour of representing my country and go to the Olympic Games and, you know, tried lots of different sports, almost with that in mind. You know, I was ambitious. You know, I loved competing. And when I, I took up judo, partly for, for that self-defence, because uh, just going to school in a, in a bit more of a rough area and my dad was keen that we could look after ourselves. So judo came from that, but my competitive side sort of pushed me onwards through that. And part of our training was on the rowing machine. And at the time, I loved it because it was something new. I'm not sure I'd say I love the rowing machine now, but uh, at the time it was something new. And I just, I just got on and I just trained hard as I did on anything. And I guess having done sport all my life uh, meant that I was naturally quite fit and strong. And one day someone just came up to me in the gym and said, oh, are you a rower then? And I said, no. I'd never noticed it on the television. I'd never been in a paddle boat. My family didn't row. My school didn't row. I'd never really had no idea about what rowing really was. And they just said, well, you're doing really good times on the rowing machine. I thought for fun, let's go on a rowing course and decided to go on two rowing courses in the summer just for something different, a bit of a break away from judo. And you know, the rest is history. It got picked up from there, really. No, don't say the rest is history. <laughs> you can't say that to me. The rest is history. You go on a rowing course, big deal. I've been on a French course. I can't speak. Tell me how you become a world champion two years later. Well, I spent most of my first week falling in. <laughs> <laughs> I was not a natural rower. I could pull hard, I could work hard, but I had no technique. Um, I didn't understand the technical side of rowing. But um, the, the second course that I went on at Tideway Sculler School, uh, there was an old boy there called Alec Hodges, uh, you know, one of the backbone bones of the club that you find in clubs. And he just looked at me and he said, you've got potential. You're strong, you're good on the rowing machine. I'm going to teach you how to row. What, how old was Alec Hodges? Do you, he was he was in his seventies. Whoa! Yeah. And, and he, this is see. No, when we talk to sports people mm. now, we can't drive past something like this. We, we'll you know we'll cut other things out of our interview for this. Somebody looks at this Bradford girl who's never been in a boat, has been on a rowing one or one course, and says, "You've got potential. I'm going to make it happen." Yeah, that is total class. What happens in the next period with him? We finished the end of the course. We did a time trial race on the last day. I came last by minutes, lots of minutes. And then we did a race on the rowing machine over a thousand metres and I beat all the boys. And he said, right, I think you should come to London as many weekends as you can and I will coach you. You can, you can sleep in the crew room at the club 
I will feed you. I'll get someone to look after you. Uh, but I really think that you should, you should row and I'll help you. So I went back home and I thought, oh, right. Well, okay, I need to join a rowing club. <laughs> that would help. And let's see where this goes. And, you know, I'd spent three months being really keen uh, in all my spare time around school because I was doing my A-levels at the time. I was working hard at school, uh, but in all my spare hours, I'd, I'd go down to the rowing club. I'd, I'd, I'd go out in, in a single. I'd fall in lots. I'd, I'd do work on the rowing machine and I'd be on the phone to Alec and he'd, I'd tell him how I was doing and he'd tell me what to work on. And then uh, weekends, my dad, if he could, would drive me to London from Yorkshire. I'd We'd both sort of sleep in the crew room and I'd get some coaching for the weekend. And after about three months, when I was back at my rowing club, one of the coaches there said, look, Debbie, you know, you're working really hard. You're putting in the hours and you're keen. I can see that. But I don't want you to be disappointed. I don't want you to waste your time. Actually, I just don't think you're going to be much more than an average club rower. And I thought... Gutted. You're not going to name him, are you? That's like the bloke who let the top player go. Don't name him. Gutted. And, you know, to be fair, at that time when I was a junior, it wasn't usual. for We didn't have many juniors in the north. Uh, and in the rowing clubs at that point, you know, rowing hadn't sort of catapulted into the public eye. It was really unusual. And he was, you know, really trying to be helpful. So I rang Alec and I said, Alec, is this... I'm not sure this is worth it. Is it, you know, what... Where you know, what am I going to improve? You know, I was still coming last in all the novice races. I was still falling in. I just didn't get it, the technical side. And he said, no, come up for one more weekend. I've got someone for you to meet. You need to come up for one more weekend. He was insistent, wasn't he? Was he was very insistent. All right, well, come on. I I can't wait to get to 99 when you're world junior champion. So I know. how does this, what's the next tipping point here? still not there yet. So he had arranged for a guy called Mark Banks to come and look at me. Uh, now, Mark Banks was the chief junior coach of the British team at the time. And his job as chief junior coach is to coach the top juniors to the World Championships, get medals. He would have teachers, parents, coaches ringing him up all the time saying, we've got this new girl, we've got this new guy, uh, come and see them. And he wouldn't go and see because that's not his job. Um, other people do that. And you can turn up to trials and prove yourself there. But for some reason, Alec had rung him and he didn't know Alec. And he said, all oh, right, this is this is unusual. And this girl sounds like she's strong on the rowing machine. I'll I'll come and have a look. So I went up for that last weekend, that one last weekend, and Mark Bank came came down, saw me on the rowing machine, was, was quite impressed. Took me out on the water, you know, I was on the wrong side of the river, I nearly fell in. It was horrendous. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. What when is this? Is this ninety eight? This is ninety seven. Summer is of ninety seven. Like... Yeah. My goodness, yeah. you're on the wrong side of you're, fa- you're falling in. Yeah, yeah. It's just, this was just before November. You're um, in the Sydney Olympics three years later, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Debbie, this is ridiculous. This is truly ab- this. What a story this! I'm telling you now, what a story this is for young athletes, <laughs> seeing how people who trust in you yeah. and back you. The raw potential gives you a chance. Definitely, those few words of encouragement and someone <sighs> someone putting some time in into you really and. We sat and chatted after after that uh, that show of rowing for about half an hour, and he said, "Right, Debbie, I'm now going to coach you from now on, and I want you to come to the first junior trials, which is in December. And it doesn't matter how you do there. I'm going to invite you to training camp in Spain in January with the junior team, and I'm going to try and find you some funding for uh, for your petrol. And I want you to come to Nottingham every weekend, and I'm going to coach you, and I'll coach you in the week over the phone." I don't want you to go into the gym 
don't need to go on the rowing machine. You don't need to do weights. You just need to learn how to row. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it went from there. I, I came last out of over 100 people at the junior trials in December. I came 14th at the Kingston trials in uh, February and I won final trials in April. You won them in... What, yeah. Say that... No, let's hear that again. <laughs> you came last in December yeah. of 100 or so. Over 100, yeah. 17th in February. 14th in February. 14th in February. Yeah. And you won it in... I won in April. Oh, my yeah. word. This is a class story. You know, that it's one... That, class that, that Those two coaches and then that one coach just finding that piece of the jigsaw, teaching me how to row, putting that time in. So, you get to 99... I'm taking you, you, you're now gold in the under-23 world champs in double skull mm. by 99. And it's time to go to Sydney Olympics 2000. Yeah. Did you think you'd make it? Yeah, I had a life plan. My, uh, my life plan was finish school, train full time for two years. So put my life on hold, train full time for two years, go to the Sydney Olympics and then get on my life, become a veterinary surgeon. You were a spare which is a, the most horrible <laughs> word one can imagine when you're the substitute. Yeah. You are a spare, yeah. Debbie, at the Sydney Olympics. Your hopes were so high, it must have been devastating. It was. You know, I, I moved away from home, down south. I didn't really know anyone, knew my, knew my coach, Mark, and I trained full-time, did nothing else for two years. And I was aiming to go into Sydney in my single. And I had a singles race off for that event, for the well, the, for the selection trials. And a tough old race against Alison Mowbray, who I later raced with. Um, and I was leading the race for about 1,500 metres out of the 2,000 metres and got pretty rough in the end 500. And, you know, my lack of experience and, and skills still uh, meant that I lost that race. I came second in that race. That meant that I didn't go to the Sydney Olympics as a as a racer and at the time I was absolutely gutted and I just thought what a waste of two years I've just wasted two years of my life uh, and I've not made it and I just thought why on earth am I here why have I just wasted two years of my life and actually you know it then took my coach Mark to say look you haven't made the Olympics this year but you are you're still of a very good standard you've been invited to be a spare <laughs> of which I said I don't want to be a spare I'm not going <laughs> Uh, but I had other things that I could do that year. I, instead, I did the under-23 World Championships and Henley Roll Regatta. At the time, I said, oh, don't, what's the point? And Mark said, look, finish this year and race. I ended up racing at Henley Roll Regatta and becoming the first Briton to ever win that event. And no other Brit has ever won that event since. And then went on to the under-23 World Championships and became the first Brit to win the under-23 World Championships in a single and the only Brit to have done that to date as well. And actually, I got to the end of that year and I thought, wow, this is not what I'd intended to do. But if I, if I could go back, this is what I would have done instead of going to the Sydney because I was not good enough to be there. I was not good enough to go to, to Sydney at that time and compete on that international level against the seniors and, and, and be anywhere near the medals. But yeah, I'd, I'd done something which, would, which had just been an amazing year just such an encouraging year and for me you know it wasn't necessarily about the wins it was about realizing that actually this was the right path for me actually God's really got my life in his hands and actually it's not going to stop here this is not a two-year plan for me actually you know I've absolutely loved this year it's gone from being the lowest moment to just an amazing time and I look back on my life actually over those last three years into rowing and I could just see that 
you know, God had taken me via different people and, you know, the different people that I'd met and the different circumstances that had come up were really, uh, yeah, it just blew me away. You just thrown God into the story a couple of times here in that uh, 2000 year of Sydney and Henley. And where does all that fit in in this sports narrative that I'm hearing from the young Debbie Flood? <laughs> I Well, I grew up in a Christian family. So from the age I can remember, we went to church as a family on Sundays. Uh, my grandparents were also missionaries in Africa uh, for a number of years. So if you'd have asked me when I was growing up and when I was doing sport, you know, are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? I would have said, well, yes, you know, I go to church on, on Sundays and my, my family are Christians and just assumed it was an automatic kind of thing. I, I knew that God had uh, blessed me with those abilities and opportunities to do sport and that, that love for doing it and the enjoyment of the sport as well. I already knew that. But it wasn't until uh, I joined a, a youth group when I was 15. I was doing judo at the time. And even when I joined the youth group, sometimes we, like, we remember once having a, a party at, at church and I'd, I'd run out, I'd snuck out halfway to go across the road to the judo to do some training. And, you know, for me, sport was my drive, sport was my energy, sport was my passion. I, I, lo I love sport. That's where, that's the, the love that, that God had given me. But you know, once I started um, going more to the youth group and really listening to the leaders because I, I engaged with, with our leaders and started to really listen and realise that actually being a Christian and understanding God was not just an automatic thing. It was actually a choice that I had to make for myself. You know, I really I had believed that you know, God created us and that he created us with purpose, with ability. But I didn't realise that I had to make a choice to ask God into my life actually to have that relationship with him and so I learned at the youth group that actually you know to mend our relationship with God because none of us are perfect you know we don't put him first in our lives and we do our own thing and none of us can say that we've never done a wrong deed or thought a wrong thing and you know that breaks our relationship with our creator and for me as a young 15 year old I was like whoa wait a minute I think this is important you know this is I want to put this right this is really important how do I do that and hearing the name of Jesus and really understanding that that's how, you know, God's brought us back to or given us the opportunity to come back to him by Jesus coming to um, die on the cross in our place and take away all the wrong stuff that we have ever done that we and that we still mess up, you know, day to day, you know, but having a relationship with Jesus and having him in in my life, which I did when I was 15, I I asked him into my life. I said, you know, I want to be right with God. I want to have that relationship uh, Jesus come into my life and for me that was really the start of my Christian walk and my perspective on life really and that built through my sport I, I knew that God had put me on this path and I was just going to go with it and and love it and see where it took me and my faith has been something that's given me such a grounding and foundation and sustained me through the crazy world of sports and you know given me that life perspective really. So, so I I triggered that question to you by you mentioning God in in the the year that was two thousand. Yeah. Not making the boat, mm. but going to the Olympics, winning Henley, first female Brit mm. to do so, still to this day. Uh, and then you say, but God was in this with me. So mm. we we've heard your your story, your own narrative in your teenage years of growing up from this family. I can I ask you a couple of supplementaries on this? How did that impinge on the Sydney experience? As a Christian person, I can't quite pin it, you see, for the listener. You're bitterly disappointed and yet you hold on to God. Mm. 
Explain how that works for an athlete as competitive as you. For me, it was a real light bulb year, really. There was that extreme disappointment. And those two years I'd put in, you know, everything. I'd moved away from my friends and family. I'd, I'd trained full time. I did nothing else apart from from train. I was living at the time with a, an elderly lady who was at a, a church in Reading. In fact, again, looking back on my life, you know, my church had contacted all the churches in Reading to say, you know, we've got this girl, she wants to train full time. Is anyone, can anyone put her up? And the first lady that had gotten back to me was a lady who lived in Caversham, which just so happened to be a minute's walk from the boathouse where I was going to be training and down the road from where my coach lived. And it was one of those, you know, threads in my life that I look back on at that point in 2000 and thought, ah, oh, yeah, this is this has been God's plan. Not only has he, you know, given me that love and motivation for sport and to be within that world, but I looked back on my life when I when that when that happened in 2000, when I went from such an extreme low to an amazing year and I could see where God had taken me and you know, we're not promised uh, an easy life, ups and downs throughout the sport. At the time when I didn't make the Olympics, I questioned God. I said, God, why am I here? I've just wasted two years of my life. What was the point of that? And it took for me to finish that year and see, ah, actually there was a point. And I always come back to that year in, in my faith and in my favourite Bible passage, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And for me, that year was a it was a learning experience. You know, we're always learning more as we go along in our Christian faith. You know, my life is a platform in which I get to know God and which I get to know myself as well. So you're going to be a veterinary surgeon when you're in the sixth form and you're going to be GB judo champion. By 2000, you're going to have another three Olympics under your belt, at least three Olympics under your belt, 0408 and London 2012, and you're going to end up as a prison officer. Now, I would love to talk about Athens, beautiful as it is, with um, uh, the, the wonderful Greek philosophers at the Areopagus. And I can't even say it, so we're not even going to talk about <laughs> Athens. But you, you medal, of course, in, in Athens and uh, with a silver, and in Beijing, 08, you get a silver. I want to pick up on, on 08 Beijing mm. for two reasons. Uh, one, we're back to a theme that's emerging here, Debbie. <laughs> you were gutted in Beijing. <laughs> the girl wins silver, but she's gutted. But of course, serious athletes really would understand that. And you've just mentioned prison officer. You end up as a prison officer. Now, I want to understand this. Let's do gutted. Why were you gutted in Beijing? We had spent four years absolutely aiming for that gold medal. We won an, a silver medal in Athens, which was an amazing experience, absolutely fantastic as a crew, as such a, a privilege to represent my country, to be on the medal podium. Wow, what an experience. You know, it's so hard to describe that. But after that point, that was it. The focus was on winning gold medal, gold medal standard in everything, gold medal standard training, gold medal standard eating, gold medal standard sleeping, gold medal standard communication. Everything was aiming and towards that gold medal. And the quad had been world champion 2005, 2006, 2007. I'd been part of those last two years. And we went into the games with total confidence in ourselves each in each other. Obviously in sport, nothing is ever guaranteed, but we went in confidently racing. That's what was our aim. That was our goal to to bring back a Olympic gold medal for our country to be the to be the first quad to ever bring back an Olympic gold medal. You know, it was never going to be easy. We'd been beaten a few times that season, but we knew we had it in us. We knew that on a on a top day we were capable of winning a gold medal. And we and actually ended up leading that race 
for six minutes out of that six minutes and 17 seconds of the race. And in those closing stages, the Chinese crew went faster and, and, and overtook us. And I'll just stop right there. <laughs> for outsiders, we won't get the subtlety of a second when you know you're going to lose. Mm. Tell me, can you do it now? Is it too painful? The second you know they've done you. Not, never a thought. It's not over until you cross that finish line. Not such a thing. No such thing. No. You just row. Yeah. Row. Until you cross that finish line, anything can change. As soon as you have a second of thought of doubt, you've lost a race because your body responds to that. You know, your mind has, has accepted that you've lost. And we don't train ourselves to do that. We train ourselves to believe that we can win. And that's one of the reasons it's it's almost so gutting, you know, because you, you cross that finish line and the second you cross the finish line, you know, and everything just collapses down. You have no energy anyway. You can't even breathe. You know, your body is absolutely screaming at you. And, you know, for us at that point in time, that was uh, 11 years for a one six minute race, 11 years into one six minutes, one chance to get it right, one chance in front of those 30,000 people and those noises and, you know, to win a gold medal for your country and for each other in your team. And no words could console us. You know, we were crying on the interview because you you finish racing and then as soon as you finish, you turn, you go onto the press pontoon and you're interviewed. And then as soon as you've been interviewed, you go onto the medal pontoon. There's no time to think, no time to process. You just, you're just emotions. I'm looking across to the right because all I'm doing is I'm searching for my parents in the crowd. I just want to see them. And I knew that I'd be all right, relatively, if I if I saw them. And, you know, the pictures are terrible. We need to get them redone. We're just all crying. We look miserable. And it was a tough, tough time, tough foot time for us as a crew. I haven't got a face for filming things that you can see. I'm a, a face for podcasts me but if there was one time when I wanted a camera it was on Debbie Flood's face when I said to her was there a split second when you knew you'd lost and your face was a mixture of rage frustration with me idiot do you not get this you not get this you muppet and that's when you get the insight into what the top really looks like when did God kick into the Beijing experience for me I would say the next day actually Winning a silver medal is still, obviously, like, it's an amazing achievement. And I think I'd had, oh, how old was I then? So I was, I was I was 28, so I'd had 12 years of really sort of developing my relationship, walking with, with God in, in my faith and through my sport, uh, learning through the ups and downs, you know, learning and remi- remembering to have perspective. I already knew at that point that nothing is guaranteed. Sport is sport. You know, if someone goes faster than you on the day, then they win. That is how it goes. All I can do and all I've ever tried to do within my sport and the abilities and opportunities that God's given me is absolutely work as hard as I possibly can with those abilities and and talents that he's given me. If I do that, then I can be proud of my achievements. My perspective on life as a Christian, I think, is just so much bigger because I know that I'm not defined by my, my medals or whether I win or lose a race. It doesn't mean that I'm a great or a rubbish person. Um, you have the emotions, obviously, with it, and you have the what the world sees in terms of whether you're the best in the world or not. And you want to be the best in the world, no question. You know, I'm competitive. I want to win. I want to be the best in the world. But more than that, I I want to just go along the path that, that God's given me with absolutely every ounce of my being that I have. The next day, I knew that we couldn't have done any more. We had a fantastic race. You know, nothing went wrong. And that is sport. It's not going to break my life. You know, my life is solid in in Christ. And I've I absolutely love 
my rowing. You know, I've loved being a part of it and it's not just been about the medals for me. I look back on my career and it's it has been a successful career, but I've built amazing friendships. I've been on a journey that's been my life journey. I think, you know, I had pretty good perspective even the next day. It didn't mean that I wasn't still gutted. I was, but I had perspective on life. At the London Olympics, three times in history, there's been an Olympics in London. And to be an athlete who's Olympic standard at that time in history must have been remarkable. It was an incredible Games to be a part of. The atmosphere, the home territory, the buzz of the Games was like nothing I'd ever experienced. Just so much more than the other Games that I'd been to. Being on a home Games and, you know, Linda did a, such a fantastic job. To be a part of that team was, was pretty incredible. And, and I would say that that was the best Games I've been to. London might have been a huge huge spectacle and a great games to be part of. I'm curious to hear you put it like that because I know that for two years running up to London, effectively you were wrecked, you were injured, you competed injured. Was it still worth it? You knew you couldn't win. So many people uh, came up to me after London and said, Debbie, four years, four years of hard work. Was that worth it? Was that worth going to the Olympics and not coming back with a medal, you know, to end your career on? And I said, without a doubt, without a question, I have no regrets spending all that time, spending those hours rowing. To be a part of that Games was incredible. And injury does happen. But I've had an amazing career. There's been a, it's been an amazing journey that God's placed me on. And I'm not defined by my medals. It's not who I am. You know, when I pass away, my medals are not going to come with me. In the light of eternity, knowing Christ, knowing Jesus is the most important thing. And Again, that perspective on life. The Games was amazing. It was amazing seeing my best friends win gold medals. Gutted I couldn't add to that, but I'd still say it was the best Games I've been to. After Beijing, it's the first time you take a year out for a long time, 12 years? Yeah. And you decide to be a prison officer. Why did you want to be a prison officer and why did you stop racing? For me, you know, it started even before that year. And sometimes you don't see it as you go along. But for me, you know, God's weaved different paths and different things through my life, through sport. And actually, because of rowing, I got opportunities to go into schools, to do assemblies, to talk about sport, to talk about motivation, determination, to encourage youngsters just in in life, not just in sport, but in whatever they may be good at. I love helping people see that they've got worth. You know, God makes us with purpose and with value and with worth. And I love being able to transfer that to every individual. So I, I really loved working in the schools. And from that, I ended up going to do some mentoring in a school. I went in to mentor one person because he decided that after listening to my talk that he was going to do something in his life, he was going to be a footballer. And I just thought, I'm going to go in and I'm going to... I'm going to put some time and, and just encourage him. Um, he didn't go to school. He often didn't, just didn't turn up to school. So I just wanted to encourage him in life. I went in to do that and ended up with a class of 10 kids <laughs> to encourage and mentor. And they were all sort of three or four years below their learning age, all for different reasons. Some learning ability. One, just because of home life, family life, not being able to sleep at home. So we had a sleeping bag in my class and often if he was tired, he was allowed to sleep. Some youngsters just needed a bit more attention, a bit more love and care. One of the lads was a drug runner for his older brother, so he was slipping behind in all his, his schoolwork. And I just felt God pulling my heart in that way. I had 
I'd not intended at all to go down that path career-wise. I was dead set on being a veterinary surgeon. I'd done years and years of work experience. I'd worked on farms. I'd worked in kennels. I'd worked at vets. I'd worked at an abattoir. That was where I was heading. God was pulling my path towards working with youngsters, but particularly youngsters that were either disengaged or uh, disruptive within the school environment. And being <laughs> the person that I that I am perhaps from my my sport and my sports background, I, I decided that if I was going to do it, it was going to be all out. So I just decided to go and do some work experience in a, a prison. And again, I only got in there to do some voluntary work because of my rowing. I was accepted in there because I went and helped in the gym. There's no other way I would have been allowed to have been a volunteer. And it just got, you know, weaved in gently into my life through the rowing opportunities and my heart was pulled in that direction and I made that decision and it went from there really. What fascinates me about you is that you've got this mega, mega competitive body language and attitude, which of course you must have because of your career. And yet at the same time, weaving through everything you say and do is a passion for, not just a passion for team and people, which you get with sports women, but an authentic passion for people's welfare. Is that what drives you as you look at the next part of your career? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, value and well-being of a person is it's just you know life is important and even in my you know like I say in my rowing career loved seeing people develop to learn and to achieve what they're capable of achieving in my work now you know working in the prison service or working with disengaged youngsters or adults to help them understand and realize that they've got so much to offer they've got capacity they've got value and that they can uh, achieve many things and not just you know in success as we see in the world but just in themselves as a person as a character yeah I just love working with people in the prison service I initially worked with young young males but actually towards the end of my career I worked with with adult males I just yeah I just am passionate about helping people see that there is more to life and there is more to them than they think well, Debbie Flood, who knows? If I interview in 10 years' time, you might well have become a high court judge <laughs> and a veterinary surgeon, and you'll probably have competed in four other sports at veterans level for GB. It's been a joy interviewing you. Uh, great to have your company, your top girl. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, we're done. Hey, don't forget, you can find us by searching for Christians in Sport on iTunes and SoundCloud or at christiansinsport.org.uk forward slash podcast. And it's been brilliant to hear your thoughts on last month's podcast. We'd love to hear them again. Please do tweet us at CIS underscore UK and you can find us on Facebook. Oh, and uh, don't forget, do rate and review this on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Good, we're done. See you next month.